Good morning. It's great to be back with you again here in Summit, New Jersey. I pastor a church in Chelsea and um, called Trinity Grace, and uh, it's always such a joy to be in Summit early in the morning, especially on a beautiful day like today. It was 1992 when Jerry Siegel took his final breath. He died in LA at the age of 81. But over 60 years before that day, he conceived of the world's greatest superhero, also known as... It's not Ant-Man, I can assure you that. Though that will hit the screen soon. Anyone? Bueller? Superman. Superman is the world's greatest superhero, people. Let's get clear about that. If there's one thing we need to know today, it's that. But did you know that the first draft of Superman was actually a villain rather than a hero? That's how he was created. But one summer night in 1934, Jerry Siegel, tossing restlessly in his bed, reinvented Superman and transformed him into a hero. In a world at the time that was sick with depression, violent crime, the threat of fascism and war, Americans needed a hero who would be willing to use his powers for good and not for evil. But here's the kicker. In March of 1938, Siegel made a deal with DC Comics to sell the rights of Superman for $130. Immediately thereafter, he was dismissed from the project and he lived the remainder of his life right at the poverty line. He ended up taking a job in LA as a copyist, making $7,000 a year. While the first Superman movie alone made over $80 million. Incredible. And the point is this. The point is that Jerry Siegel failed to grasp the true value of what had been birthed in him back on that restless evening in 1934. And he sold it for just a few $20 bills. Now here's why this matters this morning. Professing faith in Christ, not faith in your job or faith in your intelligence or faith in yourself and all these other things that we find uh, appealing to put faith into throughout the course of life. Professing faith in Christ, what it does is this, in a nutshell, is it opens us up to the possibility and to the certainty that the Spirit would come into our lives. When we move into a place where we've gone to our wit's end of trusting ourselves, of trusting our jobs, of trusting our own little lives to, to bring full value and identity, and we begin to surrender them to Christ, it opens up the portal for the Holy Spirit to come into our beings and transform us from within. In other words, your soul is like soil. And when Christ is the Lord of your life, the spirit is the seed that comes in, that takes root. And in cooperation with God over the course of life, the spirit seeks to conform you into the image of Jesus. This is really, really good news, by the way. This isn't oppressive news at all. This is an invitation to life. But here's the issue. Like Jerry Siegel, the creator of Superman, more often than not, I think what happens in my life and maybe yours is we fail to grasp the true value of what has actually been birthed inside of us in the sending of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So we settle for religion. 
We set up for just some philosophy, from some tips for life. When all of a sudden God is saying, if Christ is in you, my spirit dwells closer than your breath. And you should take that seriously, about that, what that means for us, about the kind of power that is at our disposal, about the kind of spiritual authority that God has given us, right? What then becomes possible in life? I'm interested in questions like that. Let me, let me frame this before we go any further this morning. I want to give you the Bible in three parts. Some of you have encountered the Bible before. Maybe you read it regularly. Maybe you feel like it's so distant and archaic, I can't connect with it. The Bible in three parts, just simplified, goes like this. The way things were, right? The way things are, and the way things will be. That's the Bible in three parts. Say it with me. The way things were, the way things are, the way things will be. Now, let me say it a different way. Maybe it goes like this, stating a different way, putting it into a chart. Let's start with the way things were. Now, the way things were is Genesis 1 through 2, which I know you don't remember those things. Remember those things called books and they had those things called pages? You could actually turn, you know, I know you have your phones now. They used to have these things called pages. And if you, if you think about a page, Genesis 1 and 2 is going to be about 2.5 pages in your Bible. That's the way things were. It was, it's telling the story of the way things were originally designed to be. And then you go to the end of scripture and you go to the way things will be. So we know how God designed them, designed the world to be. It's not exactly living into that in our expectation and fulfillment. But we also know that the way scripture talks about the way things will be, and that's Revelation 21 through 22. Another 2.5 pages. Now, what does this mean? This means that the majority of the scripture is obsessed with the way things are. It's obsessed with talking about your everyday life. It's saying, yes, things were designed to be a certain way and things are moving to a fulfillment in a certain way, but the majority of your life is everything in between, right? Which is, oh, by the way, about 2,000 plus pages of scripture that is devoted, obsessed, absolutely keyed in on what does it mean to live the story that God has called us to live. The point being is that the bulk of scripture is a narrative about becoming. It's a narrative about growth. Another way to say it, a fancy way to say it, it's a narrative about spiritual formation. In other words, the scriptures have an opinion about the potential quality of your life, not just the quantity of life, that will come after death for those in Christ, but the quality of life that's designed to be accessed now. How many of you have heard of David Brooks? David Brooks is probably the, the best known journalist of our time, or at least one of them. He's an amazing columnist for the New York Times. He wrote a book recently called The Road to Character. If you're looking for a great book to bandy around with your colleagues uh, or your, your neighbors or whomever that, you know, don't follow Jesus or whatever, but are interested in conversations about life, about transformation, about personal growth, this is a really great non-threatening one to get, The Road to Character. Brooks says things like this. Most of us have clearer strategies for how to achieve success than we do for how to develop a profound character. Let me say that again. Most of us, we have clear strategies about how to achieve success, right? Than we really do about the own inner quality of our lives. He goes on to say this. We live in a society. Now, let me remind you, this doesn't come from a church Christian theologian. This is a guy from the New York Times saying, we live in a society that encourages us to think about how to have a great career, 
but leaves many of us inarticulate about how to cultivate the inner life. The competition to succeed and win admiration is so fierce that it becomes all-consuming. We live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves and to master the skills required for success, but that gives us little encouragement to humility, sympathy, honest self-confrontation, which are necessary for building character. Years passed and the deepest parts of yourself go unexplored or unstructured. You are busy, but you have a vague anxiety that your life has not achieved its ultimate meaning and significance. Boom. That is it. That is such a great snapshot of where we are in our time. Last week, my colleague in Tribeca, Michael Redzina, began this series by looking at the fruit of the Spirit called love. In other words, of all of the words in the English language, love best describes who God is. And this God of love dwells inside of us. And what happens in the fruit of the Spirit, it's not that it's nine qualities that we need to go out and get and achieve. And we're going to talk about that this morning. It's that the love of God pours into our hearts and it begins to overflow in a manifestation of things like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that the love of God manifests itself in all areas of our lives. That's the design. That's what scripture is obsessed with talking about, is how do we grow now that God is inside of us through the spirit? How do we cooperate in that way to begin to look like Jesus? So today we're going to focus on the second fruit of the spirit called joy. Or in the Greek, it's pronounced kara. And the way I would define joy is like this. Joy is the soul's internal gladness that transcends external circumstances. Again, not that external circumstances are wrong or should be chucked away, but the soul is a permanent sort of access to a joy that is abiding within you that transcends what we're going through. It carries us through what we're going through. And we all know these types of people in our lives, people that exude this sort of characteristic. There's some of the most compelling people on earth that are just full of joy, not like phony happiness, but a true sort of anchor within that doesn't seem to be easily shaken when things begin to get difficult. Now here's my hunch. My hunch around joy is if we were to survey this room and ask all of you, how many of you would be up for more resources of joy in your life, more access, more access to what it meant to live a joyful life. My hunch is that 100% of you would say, yeah, I'd actually be up for that. If there was more that was available, I would actually be into that. No matter what level I am on, I'm for more joy in my life. Sign me up. Most of you would say, man, if you could give more joy to my boss, I'd be up for that. If you give more joy to my neighbor, that would be really great. Thank you very much, right? Like, so this idea of joy, we, we want it to abound. It's not that we want to be against it, per se. And so this is what I did for the rest of the talk. I prepared some of the best talking points sociologically, psychologically, and neurologically that you could ever want to hear when it comes to data on how to access more joy and why it remains elusive so much. And then a couple of days ago, I chucked it all and just threw it away. 
Because there's something in me, I mean, this is my fourth or fifth time preaching here, and so I feel like we kind of know each other at this point, at least some of us. And if it's okay with you, I just sort of want to chunk the data and, and just share my heart for a little bit. It, it's, it felt to me counterfeit to put a treatise on how we can go get more joy and here's the data neurologically you need to know about how your brain works. I mean, where that, that has a contribution. I think there's something more meaningful about what this means in my life and maybe what this might mean in yours at a heart level. And it began like this. Two weeks ago, I was reading a psalm that haunted my soul. It's one of those moments where you feel when you read it inwardly exposed where it's like you look in a mirror, only you're not exactly happy with the reflection you're seeing. You're seeing what you want to see, but you know that what it reflects in your life may not be exactly what the scripture is saying. And it was just one of those Psalms. It wasn't like a condemning, shaming. It was just like a, a haunting longing for something more in my life. And those are really special moments in life, by the way, because if you're not careful in those sorts of moments, those, that like self-confrontation David speaks about, David Brooks, in those moments, if you're not careful, you can miss precisely what God is trying to say to you because we're always trying to evade those sorts of realities and get to something more comfortable, aren't we? At least that's my strategy. And the psalm read something like this. Here's verse 15, and it's all I'll share. And he gave them what they asked but he sent leanness into their soul. Haunting for me. Changed my week. And he gave them what they asked. Sent leanness into their soul. Now, who are they? He's talking about the Israelites. In today's world, the people of God, the church, the people that we're all about, worshiping on Sunday, all about going to church, all about being around, giving to the, all, these are the people of God. And they're in their journey in the wilderness, learning to connect relationally with this God who has pulled them out of slavery. And so they're on this journey through the wilderness and God is providing for them. God is preparing the way for them. God is leading them into a fertile land. And it says that they were asking for something. Now, what were they asking for? They were asking to fill their bellies with quail until it came out of their nostrils, basically. And it wasn't a bad ask. It's not like God's against us asking to be blessed, asking for more, asking for these things. But what was happening to the Israelites is that they were beginning to be enamored with the stuff of God, that they forgot God for himself. It was like the stuff became the essence. The stuff became what they wanted. The stuff became where they would be satisfied. If only then, if only this, then I could be joyful. If only this, God, you're not enough is basically what the Israelites were saying. We don't trust that you will be enough for us. Give us the desire of our souls. And so he gave them more quail than they knew what to do with. And they ate says that he gave them what they asked, but sent leanness into their soul. Now, has God blessed us? Yes, absolutely. Am I grateful for what I have? No doubt. Do I thank God for the many gifts I've become accustomed to as an American? Absolutely. But I'm haunted by the prospect 
that some of my non-essential desires, not like bad things, and some of my non-essential pursuits in my life may possibly crowd out that which is most essential, which is God for God's self and the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. I'm not opposed to good things. I'm not opposed to blessings. That's not what I'm saying. But I am haunted by the prospect that I settle for lesser loves and I call it flourishing. Do you know what I mean by this? Where I settle to be satisfied with the stuff of God and when I feel blessed, I think that is what flourishing looks like. And God would say to the Israelites, that is good, good stuff, but you're missing what matters most. Do you ever feel like that? Where you're in a place where you read a scripture or you encounter a moment or you're in nature or you're with a friend or something happens and you're haunted by the prospect that my life is fat with stuff, but my soul is thin in substance. I want to talk about that for the rest of our time because I think what's at stake is this, joy. It's that characteristic that all of us would sign up for more of yet remains elusive. Joy, the soul's internal gladness that transcends external circumstances. And here's what's at at stake, at least in my life. When I am satisfied with lesser loves, I inevitably live a lesser life. Let me say this again. When we are satisfied with lesser loves, we are inevitably, inevitably, we live lesser lives. When it becomes about the quail, when our satisfaction becomes about the boat, when it's about the experience, when it's about the security, again, nothing inherently wrong in these things, but those things actually don't bring the satisfaction and joy that we are looking for. Think about your pursuits in life. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, where are you seeking to be satisfied? Where are you seeking that? Because the answer to that will reveal whether you seek to be satisfied with joy or simply with pleasure. And I don't have anything wrong with pleasure per se in its right context, but pleasure and joy aren't always the same thing. Within joy come all sorts of pleasures, don't get me wrong. But pleasure is ephemeral. It's short-lived. It ends after something has been experienced where joy seems to exude and come out and be abundant. And I want to talk about this and unpack that a little bit because when scripture speaks of the spiritual life, it primarily uses a really interesting type of language. It uses agricultural language, right? The language of planting, the language of sowing, the language of watering and growing and reaping. And what I notice is this. I notice that most of the language we use to speak of life today primarily employs a kind of post-industrial language. In other words, we don't use words to talk about our everyday lives, about like watering and nurturing and growing. We use words like assembling and manufacturing, right? We're like the world of Ikea, where we just assemble for a living, right? And if you're like me, it takes you much longer than it really should. We're the land of assembling, manufacturing, of unplugging, (laughs) right? Of downloading, of if you're around in the 90s and you're a tech head, of defragging. Remember that one, right? Like this is the culture in which we live. You get the idea. And this matters because I think what happens is the language of our culture that we use, it carries over to the way we think spiritually. And like it or not, we are sons and daughters of the Industrial Revolution. 
and that has thoroughly shaped the way in which we see the world today. I'll give you an example of what I mean. We speak often of trying to make time, right? That's so post-industrial. We, we make time for our friends. We make time for our hobbies. We make time for ourselves and our family. Let me ask you this. How does one actually make time? Does that make sense? And I want to suggest we use language like that and we orient ourselves around the world in this sort of industrial language because we make websites, we make products. That's the world we live in. We're making stuff all the time. We go to Home Depot. We make stuff. That's sort of the way in which we do life. And so I would ask this. How many farmers are here today in the room, just by a show of hands? So you can understand the gap between the language of the New Testament and our world today. If you are a farmer, which none of you are apparently, if you were a farmer and I was asking you about your crop, I might ask you five questions. Well, let's call it a, a farmer's guide to the soil, right? I would say this. Do you sow seasonally? Do you plow thoroughly? Do you water frequently? Do you weed relentlessly? Do you reap faithfully? And if your answer was no, to any of these questions, I would then follow up and say, then why should you expect a bountiful harvest at all, right? And it's interesting that the New Testament employs this language because living a dynamic life in the Spirit is not about achieving it as much as it is about cultivating it. Does that make sense? I think that's one of the reasons most of us would say we want a more dynamic spiritual interior life and yet we feel like it's not happening. Our souls feel thin if we're honest with ourselves. And if your soul feels fat, yay, good for you. You can give this talk to someone else. But for most of us, me included, our souls often feel thin. That we cannot manufacture a life of love and joy and peace and patience, for goodness sake. We cannot manufacture the life that Paul is describing here. But what we can do is this. We can cultivate the soil of our hearts where this kind of life becomes possible. And like the bulk of scripture dealing with the way things were intended to be, moving to its end and the way things will be, we move into this process of spiritual growth and maturation, of tilling the soil of our lives over 20, 30, 40, 50 some odd years, 60, 70, 80 years to become more like Jesus. That when we are on our deathbed, we can say, truly my life has been one of growth. And maturity. And I'm not perfect, but I've been on the pathway to looking more like Jesus in my life. Does that make sense? So I want to conclude by just asking five simple questions. Instead of a farmer's guide to the soil, I want to think about five questions as a farmer's guide to the soul. And I want you to grade yourself on this. Not like, oh good, I passed or I failed. Not like that sort of thing, and I'm good or I'm bad. That's not what it's about. It's about checking in. How am I doing? Am I really up for cultivation? Or am I hoping these things will just magically appear someday in my life and I'll finally be patient? I'll finally have peace, not anxiety. I'll finally be gentle and, and, and move on from like deep-seated generational anger. All of these things that come out, I'll finally have joy, right? Like, is there something that we can say about how we're cultivating our souls that will help shape this? The first question is this. Do you feast frequently? Now, each of these is going to be worth 20 points to 100. You get the idea. 
not pass-fail, but just simple math. Don't give like a 16.5, like 20 points or not, right? Do you feast frequently? Is this something happening in your life? I'm convinced that the primary practice, I mean, we don't talk about joyful feasting in the church. And this is what you see in the first and second century. The primary practice of the early church wasn't reading good theology books, nor was it wearing cross necklaces. And both of those are fine endeavors. It was sharing meals. Sharing meals is how they passed the gospel on in their houses from one family to the next. It's table fellowship where believers ate and supported one another, where they prayed for one another and shared life. So I do have some sociological facts. I just want to share your way just briefly, and then we'll get back to my heart. A few fun facts. It's a book, for, it's a book uh, by a guy named Leonard Sweet called From Tab- Tablet to Table. And he says this, number one, just think about this in terms of the family, right? Frequent family dinners are the number one factor for parents raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, kind human beings. Family dinners. Number two, frequent family dinners are the number one shaper of vocabulary in younger children, even more than any other family event, including play. Number three, frequent family dinners are the number one predictor of future academic success for elementary age children. And you thought it was Montessori, right? Number four, frequent family dinners are the best prescription to prevent eating disorders among adolescent girls. Incredible sociological, psychological data. Number five, frequent family dinners are the variable most associated with lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18-year-olds. Now, as a parent, what I'm saying is, if that's true, I'm in. Let's get back to the table. There's something about that that opens up not just a can of Coke where you open happiness, but actually opens life to you. It opens conversation. It opens dialogue. It opens relationship. And I think this is true for the family. And I would say that to say, I think it's also true for friends. It's also true for what it means to be a church, a people that you can be yourself with, a people you can invite over and say, let's actually develop what I would call a theology of the grill. Something beautiful about summers up in the Northeast. Develop a theology of the grill where you're constantly just throwing food onto the grill and inviting people over to feast together. It's a beautiful thing. Every other Saturday in the summers, Elaine and I, uh, my wife, we do a marriage group. And we have 10 in our marriage group, 10 couples. And we just pack it out. And we just absolutely, for three hours, from five to eight, every Sunday or Saturday evening, every other Saturday evening, we just spend time being the church together asking good questions, being intentional, having conversation, playing and eating really, really well. So I would just suggest this. Find a few friends that you can really open yourself up to and eat well. The second thing is this. Do you sit quietly? Do you feast well? Do you sit quietly? Our society is so noisy. And next week when I talk about peace, I want to talk about the interior noise and anxiety that we're constantly fighting against. And I'll go more into depth on this one in that fruit of the spirit of being peaceful. But do you have time in your day, if you're honest with yourself, where you can actually be in solitude, where you're not distracted by social media, by email, by all of the other interferences of life that are waiting for you when you return to them? 
but you can be still. You can devote yourself to a reading, a simple reading of scripture. You can reflect on your life. Or you can spend time praying not at God or just to God, but with God and cultivating a dialogue with God. Do you sit quietly? Is that part of your rhythm every day, no matter how hard you're working, no matter how many kids are running around your house, is there a pocket in time where you can find resource to be in solitude? The third thing is this. Do you seek simplicity? Do you seek simplicity? Again, I want to be clear here. The issue isn't about having things. It's about a preoccupation with having things in order to feel satisfied. Questions like this come up when it comes to, do you seek simplicity? Do you have to spend money every time you leave the house in order to feel satisfied? Does that have to happen? Like, is, is walking and seeing and being in nature, is that not enough? Do you have to purchase something in order to feel like you're experiencing life, right? The next purchase, then I'll finally be, right? The next, the bigger home, the faster car, the more prestigious lifestyle, the finer fashion, the next experience. I mean, experience, I think, is the, is the currency of the millennial generation. It's no longer about the stuff and the, the material, especially if you're living in smaller and smaller homes if you're moving toward the city. It's not about the stuff. It's about the experience, where you've been, what you've seen, how you've posted it, how many likes you have on that one, right? Like all of these things come up. How about this one? The next relationship, then I'll have joy. If I could just find the next relationship. And I'm really sympathetic to this one, but I will just simply and politely say, I know single people that truly believe that getting married will finally give them the joy they're looking for. And I know married people who believe that becoming single will finally give them the joy they're looking for. And don't get me wrong, relationships bring so much joy to life. But at the same time, it's not exactly the fullness of being satisfied the way scripture is painting it here. I think we live in a unique time in human history where we live in a kind of like point and click culture, right? A world of consumerism. And if you're like me as a consumer, we're like sort of brainless in our purchases often. Uh, I mean, it's so weird. We can shop from the couch without even thinking about it. You thought QVC was innovative in the 80s. We, you can shop from the couch and have it delivered to your home in a day, hashtag Amazon Prime, right? And you don't even have to go anywhere. What's amazing about this is, if you'll show that next thing, I think my life is defined by this phrase. Like, this is my life. The point and click purchase, the buy now with one click. This is the sort of tragedy of my life. This is where I live half the time. I have a library full of books. I've rarely even cracked open because this frig is a plague for me, right? I just sort of aimlessly click that. Yeah, that's fine. One of those, bring those over here. Point and click, just one, just one click. I don't want to do two clicks. Just give me one click and I'll be fine with that, right? Like, this is the world that we live. And so simplicity isn't exactly a primary value in our culture. You gave us what we asked and sent leanness into our soul. Asking questions like, is God, is my soul lean because my longings are fixed on lesser loves? Question four, do you give generously? Do you give generously? of your time, of your talents to the people around you, the treasure that God has given you financially? Do you see in the world where you can apply your life and you give generously? There's an interesting thing. In the world's economy, 
Happiness is accrued. Have you noticed that? Through your possessions, through your experiences, all of these things. In other words, at its root, the vision for the world when it comes to living economically well is scarcity. You don't want to give it away because then you don't have it anymore. And if you share it, then it doesn't belong to you anymore, right? It's all possession. It's all cruel. And there's a scarcity mentality. And what's fascinating about happiness in God's economy is it's not accrued, it's cultivated. A very different way. At its root, joy isn't scarce when we have it. It becomes abundant when we give it away. When we begin to give ourselves to others through our talents, through our time, through the treasure God has given us. It's amazing how it's so different than what the world is prescribing, that this is what will make you happy, accrue. And what God is saying is, this is what will make you happy. Cultivate, cultivate in your soul the kind of life that can come out of you where God can actually be generative out of your life. And the last question is this, do you worship passionately? Do you worship passionately? Psalm 16 says, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy. Just want to ask Dave to come up and to underscore for a moment as we move back into a couple songs in conclusion. Do you worship passionately? In your presence, O oh God, is the fullness of joy. I mean, this is why we worship together regularly. Maybe you, maybe you ask, like, why do we sing songs and why does that happen? Because it reminds us every time that we as a community declare who God is together with one voice, it reminds us that joy is not tethered to the presence of favorable circumstances. That's happiness. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with it. But that joy is tethered to the presence of God. That there's something about becoming aware that God is here. And that God is here, quite frankly. God is deeper. God knows you better than you know yourself. And we are often so even disconnected from ourselves, let alone being connected to the God within ourselves. It's an amazing thing. And so that's why we worship. And I think joy, joy comes out of this expression. Joy comes out of recentering around that idea and moving toward that. It's where we remember how much God has done for us. And what happens when we do that, as Romans talks about, it says that God's love pours, another agricultural, meta, agricultural metaphor, that the love of God pours into our hearts and it floods us with joy. So my encouragement for you this morning isn't to hear this talk and to think, man, I gotta get more joy. I gotta go after it. I need to achieve it. I need to go some, strive after more joy in my life. I think that would actually be futile there's something to be saying, God, what is the culture of my heart? Am I feasting with people? Am I simple? Am I moving towards simplicity? Am I sitting alone quietly? Am I in a place where I, I give generously? And do I worship passionately? Because if, if I give myself to these sorts of practices, it will till the soil of my soul in a place where the spirit can actually come out of my life and manifest ways of joy and peace and patience, kindness. So if you add up your points, how did you do? How did you do? Just a simple inventory. And this is certainly not exhaustive, but how are you doing this season cultivating your soul? 
tilling the soil of what is within you. The passage says that he gave them what they asked. Lesser loves. And it choked, it choked the greater love out and leanness was sent to their soul. I want you to stand with me as we close in song. And as you stand, just a simple thing. Nothing weird, nothing too uncomfortable, but it's dark in here. And just, if you're up for more joy in your life, there's sometimes that the posture of our bodies begins to inform our hearts and our minds of what we really long for. It's sort of, we're holistic beings. We're not separate entities. And so if you feel comfortable and you're saying, I just, I want more joy in my life, I would just ask you to hold out your hands. Nothing like weird. You don't have to do it to receive joy. It's just like a way of your body saying, yes, God, I'm here, I'm available. I surrender, I consent. Would you move in the soil of my heart and change me? Give me more joy. Give me less cynicism. Give me less skepticism. Give me less stress and anxiety. Lord, I want your joy to come and inform all of the circumstances in my life that are trying like a tyranny to tell me that I don't have enough, to tell me that I'm lacking. I want to believe that your joy is enough in your presence, God. Because Psalm 106 says, He gave them what they asked, but sent leanness into their soul. But imagine if the psalmist, if we were to have it rewritten this morning for us, and it read this, and he gave them at 11.30 in Summit, New Jersey, at a moment of surrender, he gave them what truly satisfies, and he sent unending joy into their soul. That's what he did. The people in Summit were absolutely filled filled with joy, unspeakable joy. So this morning, may your souls never be thin. May your souls be fat as we worship together this morning.